Welcome to our last week in the series, Some Questions Can't Be Answered by Google. Wanted to remind you, uh, this is a PG-13 series, so we don't know what questions are going to be answered. So if you are a child, uh, we're going to just go ahead and dismiss you now to go to One Way Street. And uh, thank you so much for being in here. And uh, because we don't know what's going to be asked, uh, we would just ask if you don't want your kids, you know, hearing about sensitive subjects, uh, I would uh, encourage them to, uh, to possibly not be in here. So anyway, cool. Um, welcome. Uh, this is uh, our four-week this four-week series. Next Sunday, we're going to be starting a series uh, all about Jesus, and we're going to be talking about who Jesus was, mainly from the Book of John. So I'd encourage you uh, that if you um, have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we give them away uh, free at um, at our hub table, and uh, you're welcome to pick one of those up and take it home. John chapter one verse one is what we're going to be looking at next week. Let me introduce everybody that's up here. You've seen Danny Bourier. He's our executive pastor and one of our teaching pastors. And it's good having you up here because you keep me straight. So, And then over here to the left is my beautiful, lovely bride, Kim. And uh, one of the things that we've heard some feedback on is we'd like to have a woman's perspective. So um, some of the questions we've uh, it's been asked, all right, very good, um, uh, we're like, you know, what, you know, what does your wife have to say about that? In fact, I even think last week, in the second service, we were talking about submission. And uh, I was like, <laughs> I'll talk to you about what the Bible says, but I wish my wife was up here to answer questions. So she's going to be able to answer some questions as well. So, All right, uh, if you have a question, te- text your question. You need to put Google in front of that question and text it to 24625. And hopefully we have a question up. So let's see if we have somebody texted in today. Can you become an angel when you die? An angel. Um, that's a great question. Um, you, you, you remember uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Who was the dude who got his angel the wings when he got the bell on? What was his name? Jimmy Stewart? Jimmy Stewart? No, I don't know. Not Jimmy Stewart. Clarence, thank you very, very much. A lot of people believe that you can uh, be an, you know, become an angel when you die, and the Bible does not support that a bit. In fact, it says very clearly that before men and women were created, the angels were created. And, uh, in fact, the Bible says a third of the angels actually um, uh, kind of rebelled. And those fallen angels, Satan was one of those, uh, they became demons. So when you die, um, the, the God's word is very clear to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And it doesn't mean you have wings. All right? So uh, you do not become an angel when you die. That's a great question, though. A lot of people think that. How many of y'all have ever seen a Hallmark card or something like that with something like that on anyway, anyway, you. Anyway, me too. Um, or you hear people say, well, you know, my uncle who passed away, he's up, he's an angel and he's watching. No, he's not. So he's either in heaven or he's in hell. And whether, depending upon which way you go is really, uh, do you have a relationship with God? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? So, great, great question. Let's go ahead and, and go to the next one. I see and know my loved ones in heaven. Who wants to answer that? I think it's God. All right, good. All right. You know, the Bible talks about witnesses, the, the, the great cloud of witnesses that are in heaven, and it talks an awful lot about the fact that we're going to be there. It doesn't really speak, I don't think, specifically to who we'll know or not know. The answer clearly appears to be yes, that we will. I don't know that the Bible specifically says you're going to see or know that. That's an assumption that we make because we are all uh, created beings and because we will live eternally. 
also created wounds. So uh, if we do that, then we will know each other. And we'll see each other as we really are, not as we appear to be today. And so that's a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that, um, that I'm thinking about is when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he had a resurrected body like we will have. Um, but the disciples and Thomas and all of them, they were able to recognize Jesus. In fact, they were able to put their fingers in his hands and in his side. Um, so uh, they were able to recognize Jesus unless, you know, Jesus didn't want them to recognize him, I think, at the very beginning. So they were like, are you a gardener or something like that? And, and, and if you notice, he's able to kind of appear and disappear at will. Um, and I think we'll be able to do that as well, almost kind of like Star Trek transporter type of technology. I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. I mean, he kind of just appeared among them. And they were able to recognize Jesus. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I kind of like to think that the glorified body, my glorified body, is not going to be recognizable to those of you who have seen my earthly body because it'll be so much better. (laughs) (laughs) And that's true. I'm going to be 180 pounds. So, all right, cool. That's actually a great question. That's a really good question. Very good question. All right. Uh, Next question. What effect does the music we listen to have on our Christianity when it is not Christian-based music? That's a great question. All right. Let's tackle that one. All right, cool. I did hear that there was a little bit of concern about having a woman up here this morning just because, um, you know, we get like 100,000 words a day, and guys get like 10,000. And so it was kind of like, well, you know, if we let her up there, will she talk incessantly? So am I doing okay? Uh, (laughs) um, I think this is a great question. I think it's, you know, we are called as Christians to be in the world and not of the world. And we hear that said a lot, but how do we flesh that out in our everyday living? Um, Because if we are in this world and we want to be able to build relationships with others that do not know Christ, then we need to have knowledge of the things that they listen to, what they watch, you know, what's going on in the world. But at the same time, we're also called in Scripture to be holy. God says, be holy just as I am holy. And so how do we, how do we balance all of that out? And um, I do think that we have to be selective in what we listen to, in what we watch, um, in the books that we read, in the games that we play. Um, I know at our house, um, we face this quite often because I am surrounded by guys who love like these games with this, you know, planes or, you know, flying over cities and, and you know, and people or how, like how many players can you guys get on one of those games? Are you like hiding and killing and shooting? And I'm I, sorry, who invited it's okay. you up it's here? It's okay. No, this is good. This is good. Um, you know, and I walk through the room and I'm just like, oh, oh my gosh. Um, and, you know, the inside of me is just cringing because I'm thinking, what effect is this having um, not so much on Chris, you know, he's too far gone, but, um, you know, on, on my sons, on my boys. And, um, you know, and, and sometimes I'll be like, Chris, you know, could we please just stop the killing for a while? Could you guys just, you know, race a car or do a dirt bike? Or is this not true? I'll never be invited up here again. I can already tell. Anyway, um, but I, but in that example, that's one place for me where I just feel like, man, you know, have we crossed the line here? And I think what we have to remember is that 
while we are called to to be in the world, we are not called to embrace the things of the world. We are not called to, if we're going to listen to a secular song on the radio, you know, there's there's some great music out there. Um, you know, there's some really good love songs that, ooh, I could sing to you. Mm. Um, but at the same time, is that, is that what's controlling my life? And I know we've talked about this issue before, is the issue of control. Can I listen to it in the context of loving my husband or loving my children or whatever it may be? And can I still recognize that all truth is God's truth? That I must center my life and base my direction on the scripture and what God calls me to be. Um, should I stop there? Or can no, I say one more thing? Um, you know, even in the New Testament, when Paul was church planting in, you know, in, in many of the Greek cities, I mean, he read their poetry. He walked through their city streets. He saw what was going on so that when he had an occasion to speak to an unbeliever, he could speak to them in their context. He could say, oh, you know this poet that you really like? And he says, dee 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 Well, this is what God has to say. And so that he could be able to draw a contrast between what the world says and what God has to say. And so I think as long as we are very careful and we keep those things in mind, is it going to kill us to a little bit of, you know, take the old records off the shelf? Um, probably not. Um, but we have to be sure that we always know where our truth comes from and that it comes from the Lord. In fact, that's exactly where my, 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 my scripture is turned to right now. It's Acts 17, 23. Uh, she had talked about Paul going to these Greek cities. And um, in order to be able to communicate with them, uh, he, he, uh, he, would see the, he would look at their art. He would read their poetry. In fact, I just want to read just a couple of verses. Acts 17, 23 says this. Uh, for, uh, Paul's saying, For I was walking, and I saw your many altars, and to one of them had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. You have been worshiping him without knowing who he is, and now I wish to tell you about him. Um, what he was able to do is to take their culture, which their culture was really messed up. I mean, they were polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. He was able to take their culture and use their culture to build a bridge to tell them about Jesus. And one of the things that we do here at One Church, sometimes we will do secular songs. Sometimes we will um, we'll throw a movie clip up. Because our entire the reason we're trying to, what we're trying to do here on Sunday morning is to create an environment where people who've not been to church in a long time can be able to come and hear God's word spoken relevant. Um, so one of the ways that we do that is we, you know, pick songs that are relevant. A lot of times we'll do movies that are relevant, uh, just so that we can be able to build that bridge to be able to communicate truth. In fact, he goes on down, and in verse 28, I believe it says, um, Paul quotes a, a a a poet, and this is what it says. Um, um, he says this. Uh, we should seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards them and find them, though he is not far from us. For in him we live and move and exist. As one of your own poets say, we are his offspring. And he's quoting from Herodotus talking about Zeus. He leaves Zeus's name out, but he puts in there talking about God, Yahweh. And I think that's a really cool way how Paul, even though he, was, you know, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was able to look in the culture and be able to communicate and take that culture to be able to communicate Jesus Christ. Anything you want to add on that? I think the question is really, really a very vital question. Because, and I believe, and I think this is true, music, it's like a doorway to your emotions, to your soul in a sense. And we do have to be very careful about what we listen to, especially about what we feed upon and what we, you know, if we... Um, 
feed our soul, our emotions. That's why music is depressing. It's written by people with suicidal tendencies. They're talking about suicide or, or about um, sex or drugs or those things. You're feeding your emotions with those things, and that's not possible. That's never good. Uh, you know, the, is the question to ask about what does it do with our Christianity? Well, what it does is it can either lead us towards God or it can lead us away from God. And I think that we have to be very careful with what we do with that. I don't, I don't really, I, to be honest with you, I just hate it when we, in the church, we just throw down rules and we say, do this, don't do that, do it along those lines. I like to listen to, and you'll, this dates me, John Denver. You know, uh, the Carpenters, they are secular musicians from the 70s that I really like and that I'm very fond of. But if I start listening to music that is focused on things that are not of God, things that are fleshly and of this world, then where does my mind start to focus? Where do my emotions start to focus? So, you know, it, this is a battle that every parent fights with their uh, teen uh, and with their, their children. It's one I fought with my children. And to be honest with you, I think I, I did it poorly, uh, at least with one of my children. Uh, listened a lot to a guy named uh, Kurt Cobain, I think, right up to his group. I don't remember the name of the group. He absolutely loved that group. I did not have enough wisdom to realize how much impact uh, that was going to have on his thinking. And uh, I think we're kidding ourselves if we say music does not have an impact on what we think and on where we live and on how we feel. So, you know, be careful. The only thing I can say for sure that God's Word says about music is that country music is from hell. <laughs> I'm just joking. Just joking. All right, next question. So, didn't stop him, did I? <laughs> How do you justify sexual purity to non-Christian clients? That's a great question. Great question. You want to start? Okay. I'm going to start. Okay. Well, first thing I would say is, what are you talking about? Are you asking them to be sexually pure, or are you talking about yourself? There are, you know, there's, in a sense, God's laws and God's commandments are for us, for believers, right? When we talk about sexual purity, we're talking about what he asked us uh, to, the way he asked us to live. It's not my place to tell my non-Christian friends, stop doing this, stop doing that, don't do this. That's, that's an attitude that we sometimes get in the church. We try to impose upon them our Christian values, what God says to do, when they haven't committed their lives to God in that sense. Now, I think, so we don't try to justify in the sense of tell them that you have to do this or do that. But in the broader sense, there are certainly universal uh, morals, universal laws, natural laws that God has kind of put in place that all society everywhere has basically followed. And we justify those because we just know that it's the way that it ought to be. And it's just that, for instance, adultery. Uh, and you're married to someone, you're committed to someone, and you're, you're going to get involved in adultery. In every society, there is there's just that sense of, of this, that's not the way it ought to be. I've heard one uh, author say that the test is not so much, would I do that? But what I want that done to me. Do I know that adultery is wrong? Yes, because I know that if my uh, spouse committed adultery, I would be hurt. That tells me that it was wrong. If it was done to me, I'd be mad about it. Uh, and so I think that's one of the ways that we can talk about it in a general sense. Again, not trying to tell people, you must do this and you must follow these laws. We don't, you know, people who haven't committed themselves to God have not surrendered to the uh, authority of Scripture. They are under the authority of Scripture, and they will be judged for that, but it's not our place to say you must do this or that. Anything you want to add to that? Um, one of the things I would say is, uh, you know, it, talking about justifying sexual purity to your non-Christian friends, uh, if they look at you as a little weird, that may be what it is. 
um, because you're not willing to do that, you know, you're a little weird. You know, God's Word says that you are to be holy, and that Word means to be unique, to be set apart. And, um, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I saved myself from errors, and I had a lot of people that say, what? Are you know, do you live back in Little House on the Prairie Days? And a lot of people will look at you that way. Um, but, uh, you know, God's Word is very clear on that. Um, I think another way, you can say this, you know, even if you don't have, and this is a great point you brought up, Danny, even if you don't have a biblical worldview, even if you're not a Christian, there's some things that just aren't smart. You know, like cohabitation. Everybody says, well, you know, we need to live together. Well, even if I wasn't a Christian, I would never live with someone. And here's the reason why. 95% of couples who cohabit and then get married will end up in divorce. That's just not good. You know, now 50% of the couples who get married today end up in divorce. That's still kind of stinky. But it's a whole lot better than 95%. Wouldn't you agree? So there's some things, even if, you know, if I'm counseling somebody in my office and they don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, I'll just say, this is just not a wise move for you to make. So, all right, next question. The Bible says that wives ought to respect their husbands. What does this look like in a marriage relationship? I'm going to defer this one to, to my wife. <laughs> the Bible says, um, you know, I think this is one of those topics where we as women often feel um, we kind of misunderstand maybe what's intended when we think about respect and submission and godly authority that's been given to a man. Um, and so I hope that in this room today, this can be a place where we as wives begin to really see this as something that works in our favor instead of something that works against us. Um, the, um, the definition, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch this just a minute, and I'll come back to respect. I want to talk about submission a little bit first. The definition of submission is to willfully bow down, um, to make oneself lower in a willful manner. And... When we look at that through the eyes of respect and through giving our husbands, um, allowing them to be leaders in our home, um, that means that we do that willfully. Not so much because we've been told, once again, as Danny was saying, you do this and you do this. It's, it's requested of us, and, it's, and yes, it said, wives respect, but I think the tone of it is, and the way the word meaning comes out is, but do it because... You want to do it out of a gladness and out of a willingness. You know, God has placed our husbands in our homes to be able to speak to them as they seek to lead our families and lead our marriages. That is a huge role. That is that is not something to be taken lightly. And so sometimes as wives, you know, I think because we tend to, especially in our homes, we tend to see things as very da, 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 da. It's this and this and this and this. But, you know, as, as, as God is speaking to our husbands and they are seeking to lead us, that is just huge. And so when I think about myself being in that place, do I always want to hear what God has to say? No, I don't. Do I always want to do what God tells me to do? No, I don't. And so as the leader of a family, as God has placed a man there, how much more important is that? And also, just as Chris and I have learned together, um... Just because God calls a man to be a leader does not mean that it comes naturally to him. 
And it doesn't mean that it's something that he's crazy about doing. And so I need to understand and respect the fact that as God speaks to Chris and Chris speaks to me, he may be sharing some things that are a major struggle for him. There may be some things that he's had to already work through in his own life. And so then when he shares those with me, I better listen up because God's already dealt with him on the issue. And so when I willfully bow down, when I willfully listen, then I'm just receiving straight from God through Chris part of the Lord's will for me and our marriage and our family. And so in our marriage, what that tends to look like is that um, when Chris comes to me and says, you know, this is the direction that I feel God is calling us or this is where we need to go, then I best get down and I better pray. And first of all, I better pray, Lord, are you sure that's what you said to him? Um, and, uh, and secondly, I just need to be sure that I am believing in Chris, that I'm recognizing that God has placed him in that place. And number one, I believe in you. Number two, I trust you. And number three, I've got your back. And so that's kind of how it fleshes itself out in our relationship and in our home. You know, I, I, that's a, thank you, Amy. Um, one of the things that I think would help maybe in, in your marriage, I don't know how it looks, but um, you're talking about how, uh, how does this look like in a marriage relationship about showing respect. Uh, maybe even just to your other spouse. Um, be careful what you say around the kids about your spouse. Um, don't tear the other spouse down when the kids are in, in front of you. Um, I, I, I did some uh, premarital counseling with a couple uh, uh, a while back, and he, this person said, I've never, ever heard my parents fight in front of me. I said, really? Um, and, uh, and he says, no, I know they fought but they would always take it to another room. So um, anytime, you know, it's, it's, if you have issues with your spouse, and you will because you're human, they're human, uh, just don't tear them down in front, of, in front of the children. That's one way of showing mutual respect. In fact, God's Word says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, Submit to one another out of fear for Christ. And then it says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You know, guys, we're really great about pouncing on 22, you know. In fact, I even think you mentioned this last week. You know, if you've got to say, you need to submit, uh, you got an issue, guys. Um, but one of the things, we got to submit to one another out of fear for Christ, Ephesians 5, 21 says. Anything you want to add there? You know, I was just thinking about that. Um, I'm just going to share personally. I think that being respected is one of those core needs men, I'll say for me, that, that, I, that I want. And if I don't feel respected, then it's like it, it crushes me and who I am. And so I think that's one of the reasons that the Bible commands women to respect their husbands, because I believe God put within us a desire, a need to be respected. And if you think about what's the opposite of that, it's to, to belittle, you know, to hold with contempt. And, you know, nothing will destroy our self-confidence, or and I, that's not something I think we just jump all over, but that's just something that I want, you know, and it's just an innate need within me to be respected, and if I'm belittled, uh, it hurts, and if you're belittled by the person you love the most, it hurts the most, and so I think that's why the scripture says, you know, respect uh, your husband, wives respect your husbands, because it is, it's a need that God made that we have, and it's very important. That's a great point, man. You know, there's not one scripture in the Bible for a wife to command to love her husband. Did you know that? 
Now, let me tell you what it does say. Respect, honor, respect. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 6, it says, For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham when she called him Lord. Um, ladies, will you turn to your uh, husbands and say, Lord? Feels a little weird, don't it? All right? Now, listen, I'm going to keep on reading, though. It says, when she called him Lord, and you are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. You see, that's the issue. A lot of times when we say, you know what, I don't want to give him respect, i got to cut him down a couple of notches. Because if he gets too big of a head, if his ego gets too big, then I'm afraid about what he's going to do. But what this verse says is, you know what, you respect him, and you don't worry about what he's going to do. Because, God, hear me, God can take care of him. You remember what we talked about submission last week? I think it was in the 9 o'clock service. Submission is ladies ducking so that when God, you know, fist comes around, it hits your husband and not you. That's key. All right. You can quote me on that. There you go. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to the next, uh, next question. I know, I know divorce is not in God's plan, but are there certain circumstances where it is okay? Great question. Who wants to take this one? You want to go? You know, it's... Uh, Jesus said that God hates divorce. The scriptures clearly say that God hates divorce. It's not His plan. It's not His best idea. Jesus did leave an exception uh, in the case of adultery. In Corinthians, Paul appears to leave an, uh, an exception that's there that deals with the issue of abandonment. One spouse abandons the other spouse. It's there. And we know that we, we live with divorce as part of our society. The Jewish people live with it as part of their society. I don't think that's anything new. We act like it's unique to our time and culture, and it's not. It's been around. It's been a struggle for a long time because we're human, because we're sinful, and because we fail. God's plan is that he wants us not to, uh, to be divorced. I believe that the scriptures basically say that the, the idea there is even if there are biblical grounds for divorce, let's say adultery or abandonment, God's plan is still not divorce. His plan is for you to reconcile. Just as we, His plan is for us to be reconciled to Him. Just as we remember when we studied Hosea, you know, she was unfaithful. Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. But Hosea was for the reconciliation. That's the picture that God has for us. So to say that it's okay is really asking the wrong question. Uh, because, again, that's kind of like, well, I keep these rules, but if I, if I only keep these rules, then I'm okay. That's not the way our relationship with God works. It's what He wants for us. And it's what's best for us. It's the receipt that's best for us. Uh, and the Scriptures teach us that reconciliation is best. Now, sometimes, you know, I, I'm not saying, you know, if you're in a marriage where you're being abused or where you're being physically abused or sexually abused or those kinds of things, Separation may be what's best at that point and may be necessary. But again, reconciliation brought about by God, who is more powerful than any sin in our life, is always what's best and what we're seeking for in our lives. Okay. Does anyone want to ask that? Um, Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 32, uh, is the one that uh, Danny had mentioned about adultery that God uh, gives us that out, but it's still not in His perfect plan. Also, the First Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, and 15 talks about abandonment. Um, so, and this is what it says. It says that if, you are, if a Christian is with an unbelieving spouse, and if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you can't stop them. And that's one of the things that's really stinky. I've got to be honest with you. Our church 
for the past year has been under attack. Families have. Um, we've seen marriage after marriage after marriage fail. And i got to be honest with you, I, it, it, I cry at night about this. I get angry about it. Um, I just hate doing weddings. Really. I just hate them. Because, you know, um, and I've said more since starting one church. I've told people more, no, I'm not going to do your wedding than yes, because I just don't like doing them. Because I don't, I feel like in a way God holds me accountable if they get divorced. And I've got to be honest with you, it gets me angry. Um, so uh, I would encourage you, if you're in here in your marriage, you need to keep your guard up. There's been many times, and Kim and I, have, we've laid in bed, and I've just gotten off a phone call that somebody's gotten divorced, and we just cry because we know the, we know these couples hurt. And, you know, it, you're deluding yourself if you're thinking, you know what, if I'm happy, I, you know, I know God wants me to be happy. And because I'm not happy, then I should get out of this marriage. God never once says his main goal for you is to be happy. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, 14, and 15, he calls you to be holy. And there's a big difference. A big difference. Um, in Matthew um, chapter 19, um, get back where it was, in verse 8, it says, Jesus replies, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it is not what God had originally intended. And I think the key in that verse, part of that that really speaks to me, is that hard hearts. And, you know, I think as we remember that marriage is about covenant, um, you know, especially in biblical times, covenants were not something that were made lightly or broken easily. Um, that was like a lifelong promise. And you'd sooner bring bodily harm to yourself than break a covenant that you had made with another person, and especially with God. And so when it brings out there that it says, you know, that Moses permitted that because of your hard hearts, I think especially as Christians, we really have to look at the situation and say, is this an issue where I have a hard heart, where I'm being prideful or angry or stubborn? And um, are there some things that I need to really pray about and work through in my relationship with Christ as I look into um, you know what's happening in, in this covenant relationship with my spouse. Right, that's really good. Uh, well, let's do one more question, just for giggles. What is required to go to heaven? Um, we'll end with this one. Um, John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son." That whosoever would go to church, right? Give money to a church? Anything like that? Is that what it says? No. Believe. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's heaven. Um, John chapter 10. Uh, he says, I am the way. That's John 14, 6. Excuse me. I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, that's in heaven, he lives in heaven, except through me. Um, the, the, what's required to go to heaven is not to come to church, it's not to give money, it's not to get baptized, it's not to go through uh, a set rules or liturgy or tradition. 
what's required to go to heaven is to begin to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. It's not just a prayer, but it's a relationship. It is to have a, you know, in a way, a growing relationship with Him. So, this is a great question. What is required to go to heaven? What's required to go to heaven is that you must believe Jesus Christ. You must believe that He is who He says He is, that He's done what He says He's done, and then you ask Him to be your Savior. You admit that you are a sinner. None of us have a problem admitting that. All of us know that we got junk in the trunk, right? All of us know that we got stuff in our background that we're not proud of. We admit that that was wrong and that that separated, separated us from God. And then we ask Him to save us. And that could be done with you just praying with your eyes open, talking to Him like I'm talking to you. It could be you're closing your eyes. But I would encourage you today that if you don't know how to get to heaven, if this is a big question mark in your mind, that you would be able to, 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 to just work this all out. So I'm going to pray. And I, I always have a, a struggle talking about praying because uh, just saying words doesn't get you to heaven. It's a relationship. So even by just saying these words, you've got to mean them. And then from there, you're going to see that you are going to be totally changed. I, I've said words before in church, and I've parroted somebody when they've said something, and nothing changed inside of me. And that relationship didn't begin then. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Right? So you were dead in your sins, but now you've been made alive in Jesus that we were once in darkness, but now we're in light. So when you begin that relationship, there's a whole lot of things change in your life. And you don't see a lot of things changing, and you probably don't have a relationship. So let's close today by everybody praying. And uh, let's all bow our heads, close our eyes. And um, there are some of you out there that you may need to do this right. You may need to begin this relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do, I pray right now that you would just silently to yourself come clean. That you would ask Him to forgive you of your sins. That you would believe in Him. And just say that I believe in you, Jesus Christ. I want to have a relationship with Coming in my heart and coming in my life. Lord, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much that your word says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Lord, thank you so much for loving us that much. A love that will never let us go. A love, Lord, that you have done all the work and that we just need to accept. So, Lord, we accept your gift and we praise you, Jesus Christ. In your name that we pray. Amen. All right, next question. So... How do I overcome fears? Great question.
Who wants to answer that one? That's my question. Okay. That's all right. Do it. So I guess I'll answer my own question. That sounds good. Good. Okay, great. I'm glad I'm prepared for that. Good morning. Y'all all all look great today. Ladies, your hair looks fantastic, if I may say so myself. Yes. And the spring colors, whoo, bring it. I'm loving it. And if any of you have any cute flip-flops you'd like to leave up here after the service, size 10. So just bring those on up, okay? Um, Size 10? Hey. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. If there's two things that the Edmondson family has, big hair, big feet. Don't doubt it for a second. All right, cool. There you go. All right, cool. um, <clears throat> one of the reasons that I had texted in this question is because this has been an area for me um, of uh, just experiencing it over the past few years. And um, I think sometimes when we, when we face fear, um, we think, well, you know, I'll get over it or it'll just go away. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes we deal, deal with a certain fear for quite some time. And I, as I have journeyed through fear, one of the things that I've realized is that it's not something you ever get comfortable with. You know how some things in our lives um, that we may struggle with after a while, we just kind of get used to it being there. But fear is one of those things that is just a nagger. And it just kind of gets into your brain and gets into your mind, and it just just eats away at you. And so for me... um, I just really had to say to the Lord, you know, I've, I've got some fears here that just keep coming back. And so I need you to help me grow through those. And I need to know, how do I overcome those things? Specifically for me, the fears that I dealt with were just God's provision and um, security. And I think for women, that's something that we can that we deal with. We want to know that we're going to be taken care of, that we're provided for, that we're secure, um, that our families are safe. And so um, I just began to just really pray, you know, Lord, help me, help me to overcome my fear. Because for me, what happened in my fear was, in my walk with the Lord, I just stopped. I couldn't move forward. I, I just, you know, I looked back over my shoulder, but I just, I was afraid to do anything. I was just paralyzed. And so the first verse that God really brought to my mind was 2 Timothy 1.7. And that verse says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-discipline. So what has he not given us? He has not given us fear. What has he given us? Love, power, self-discipline. So the first thing that I had to do was apply some self-discipline. Whenever that fear would start to crop up in my mind and I would begin to kind of feed on it and feed it, the first thing I had to do was begin to say, I cannot let myself go there. You know, sometimes when we have something that we're, we kind of stew over, and I know you all have no idea what I'm talking about, um, but if we get by ourselves, we kind of go to that place of the thing that's bothering us, and we just kind of sit there and feed it and let it grow a little bit more. And so I had to begin to say, I cannot go there. If I feel myself going there, I must go sweep the kitchen floor. I got to get to Dustin. Something else has got to take the place of that action. So self-discipline. Number one um, is just that he has given me love. In 1 John, it, ta- it says that perfect love casts out all fear. Well, I only know of one person who can give perfect love, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if his love is perfect for me, I have to trust 
that it casts out all that fear. It does not come from him. It's something that I'm nursing, something that I have um, taken on. And, and lastly is his power. Um, there are two kinds of power, and I want to be careful that I don't sound like a seminary class here, but there are two kinds of power that, um, that God um, uses in the New Testament. The first one is just his power that he used in, in creation, um, you know, that he is able to do just some things that are pretty cool that, that only God can do. The second power that he used, and this is called the dunamis. Can you all say that? Dunamis. And that is like the power, the physical power of your forearm. If you are getting ready to shove something with all of your might, that's like your dunamis power. And that is the power that God used when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so when he raised him up, he didn't just go, come on, Jesus. No, he raised him with everything that he had. And so when I face that fear, I have to call on that power. There, is there any power that is greater than what God used to raise Jesus from the dead? And is there any fear that I have that cannot be addressed by that kind of power? Absolutely not. And so as, as I have tried to grow through that and learn through that, what I want to say to you today is trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And when you find yourself journeying through that, through that fear, that paralyzing, mind-consuming fear, number one, do something different. Number two, trust in the love of Christ. And number three, call on his power. He makes those available to us. And I just, um, just want to share that with you today as I have walked through it. And I hope that will be an encouragement to you. Thank you very much, Kim. Thank you very much. Um, anything you want to say there? If it's not the most often repeated, it's definitely one of the most often repeated commands of Scripture. Because fear is something we all face and we all deal with. If you say you're not afraid of anything, you're just lying. You know, and you're afraid to tell the truth. Because we, we all face fear of some kind. We don't want to face those fears. We, the source of fear really is what strikes me as something we need to be aware of. Most often, or, or often in our lives, the source of fear are the lies of Satan. As he speaks to us and tells us, and, and, and he just speaks lies to us about things that are going to happen. And I think that when we allow, when we believe the lies of Satan, we become paralyzed by fear. And it is one of those things, it happens to all of us. And the, the, you know, how do we overcome it? One, we don't believe the lies of Satan. We believe the Word of God and the truth of God. It's things that we trust in Him. We trust in what we have read and what we've filled our hearts and minds with. And that's the truth of God's Word. That there. How we overcome fear, you know, we trust in God, but we find the truth of God in the book. Next question. Do aliens exist? All right. I can answer this one really quickly. <laughs> Geek, when I hit you. Um, the Bible doesn't say, and I have no idea. Next question. Is there ever a point where God stops forgiving you or cuts you off when you are trapped in addiction and keep going back? That's a good question. Is there ever a point where God stops forgiving you or cuts you off 
when you are trapped in an addiction and keep going back. You know, um, here's the thing. Our forgiveness, the forgiveness that we offer is human forgiveness because we're humans. I know that sounds deep, but we have that tendency to say, you know what, you've hurt me too many times. I'm done with you. Um, God's not like that. In fact, uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it's in verse 32, let me just take, take it there, it says, um, Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I want to just talk briefly about that. He's saying, you don't need to forgive people because of the way your, your friend forgave, maybe forgave you. Or maybe the way your spouse has forgiven you. You need to forgive someone based upon how Jesus forgave you. It says, how, just as God through Christ, and look at this, it says, has forgiven. It's in the past tense. So, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, He has already forgiven you. In fact, it says in Colossians chapter 1 that He has forgiven us of all of our sins. Now, that, does, that means all the sins you committed before you began that relationship with Jesus, the sins you're committing now, of what you're thinking right now, and the sins you're going to commit. Because think about this. When Jesus died on the cross, how many sins were future sins that He died for? All of them. So, you have forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So, is there ever a point where God stops forgiving you? The answer is no. No. He always forgives you. Now, look at this. But it says... Or cut you off when you are trapped in addiction and keep going. I do want to say this. There, you're, all of your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Every one of them, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is the big if. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then all of your sins are not forgiven. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. Now, there can come a point... Where Jesus says, okay, you know what? Maybe you're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning. You keep it, God, I'm sorry. You sin. God, I'm sorry. You sin. There can come a point, and it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where you can go so far, you can run so far from God that he says, okay, you know what? Your sin, all of your sins are forgiven. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and call you home early. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that some have prematurely died because... They just kept on persisting in their sin. Now, when they die, guess where they're going? Heaven. Because all of their sins are forgiven. But you better believe there is always consequences to sin. In fact, we, a couple of years ago, we were reading through the book of Jonah. Y'all remember that? How many of y'all were here for the Jonah series? All right, cool. Um, uh, you know, Jonah, he sinned. He's running from God. And what does God go and do? He runs after Jonah. In fact, Jonah... They throw him off the ship, and he could have died. In fact, it says he was drowning. But what did God do? He sent a great big fish to gulp him up. If Jonah would have died, he would have still went to heaven. So, but discipline, God's final act of discipline for some, he says, you know what, I love you too much. You're causing me too much damage down here. I'm just going to go ahead, and I'm just, I'm just going to bring you on home. And he does that. So, um, any other, you want to comment on that? In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another. And I would just use that as an encouragement to say, 
you know, that scripture is very clear. When we are called to him, we are called to freedom. There is more that we can do in Christ than what we cannot do in Christ. And so sometimes when we find ourselves in a stronghold, which I believe an addiction is, anything that becomes a major focus in our life that takes our focus off of Christ being the center and almost becomes an idol to us because we we focus on it more than we focus on Christ, we've got to remember we were called to freedom. Being trapped in something is not freedom. Salvation in Christ is freedom. And so as you, as you face that, don't use your freedom to satisfy your selfish desires, but instead serve one another. Stop doing what it is that you feel called to, that you see as a stronghold. Take your eyes off of this. Serve one another. And one of the best ways to, to, to a lot of times you just can't do it on your own. There's some sins that it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you getting around some other believers and then being able to ask you some intentional questions. And that, in a lot of ways, that's one of the purposes of communion groups here at One Church. You want to say something, I just want to add, I want to, Romans chapter 7, I think, addresses this question just directly. And I'm going to say that because I, I, what I speak from here is from my own personal experience, dealing with the struggle with addiction. Romans chapter 7, I'm just going to read a few verses beginning in verse 15. Tell me if this sounds like addiction. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very same thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Does that sound like addiction? Is that how we, That's what it is, right? He says, for I do not know, uh, do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that what I want, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? The Apostle Paul wrote those words. And the Apostle Paul wrote those words about himself and about his life and the struggle that he was in. I identify with that. Mm-hmm. I've been right there. I identify with that. But thank God he didn't stop right there. Because if you think about the next couple of verses, tell us the answer to the question. Can you put that question back up? Can we get it back up? Does God stop forgiving us when we struggle with addiction? Here's the answer. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the law of flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For we have been set free from the law of death. Set free by the work of Jesus Christ. A moment ago I talked about Satan talking to us about fear and putting fear in our lives. And you know what else Satan does and evil does? He tells us that we cannot overcome those things, those addictions. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is not true in your life. It was not true in my life. It was not true in the Apostle Paul's life. Because Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he paid is far greater than the power of that stronghold. And he set us free from that, free to serve him by the Spirit. 
And amen, thank God, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that get you all excited? Yeah. No condemnation. Fantastic. Next question. Is war acceptable to God? If, uh, is war acceptable to God? Am I doing the right thing? That's a great question. Um, let's say this, because, you know, 70% of our church is made up of military. And I'm surprised this question hadn't come up the first week, to be honest with you, because um, this is one of the ones I prep for, right? In, in Romans chapter 13, let me just start reading, and then we'll unpack this question. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted, and they are to be punished. Um, it says in, in verse, uh, let's see, I'm going to keep on going. Uh, these, verse 4, the, the authorities are God's servants sent for your own good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are also God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them. Uh, and, with a, and keep a clear conscience. And then verse 6 says, pay your taxes too. All right, cool. All right. Um, I, this is what I would say. Uh, if you're a soldier and um, you go to war because our country goes to war, then you are doing what God is calling you to do because you are under authority. Um, you know, I, there's, there are a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus was a pacifist. And Jesus turned the other cheek, um, and he did when he was here on earth the first time. But when Jesus returns, he's coming on a white horse, dressed in white, opening up a can of whoop butt. All right? That's just that's the best way I can say it. He's going to come, and people are going to die. All right? He's coming as a, as a conquering king. Now, you, when you read Old Testament, you know, God tells Joshua, hey, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the land. I've already given you the land. And I want you to go and I want you to wipe them out. Now, some people say, well, God can't be loved then. Right? Because why would God say that? Again, the Bible gives us the history of mainly one group of people, and that's the Israelites. But we don't know. God may have been working on some of those other people for hundreds of years before that time. And God said, you know, we said, you know, so God goes and tells Joshua, listen, I've already given it to you, and I want you to go, and I want you to wipe them out. Uh, I believe God never changes. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. And uh, a lot of people, they say, well, yeah, Jesus turned another cheek, and he did. And he went on the cross. That's because he did it for our sins. There was an alternate purpose. He wanted to forgive our sins. Did he want to go through with it? No. In fact, he even said, he says, God, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. I don't want to do this. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. So if you're a soldier and you're under authority, and you know what? I would encourage you to stay under your authority. And what, one of the things we talked about last week about submitting, one of the questions last week is submitting um, to, uh, what if your wife and your husband's not a Christian, you're submitting you know, to his authority? Well, you know, if you know something, if you know something is wrong, if you know your soldier is telling you to do something wrong, then of course you need to report them. But if you're doing your duty, then God has called you to do that, and you do it with everything uh, in your being. You want to say something, Dan? 
couple of things. I'm just playing off exactly what Chris said. We have a duty, but who do we owe our first duty to? God Almighty. And if it's in the issue of what's right and wrong, He determines what's right and wrong. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever condone nations using warfare or any other kinds of means to go out and take from others and to, to uh, take in lands and become you know, rulers over others. That is not condoned uh, anywhere in Scripture. God did use warfare as a means of accomplishing His just and righteous ends, and it was a just uh, warfare in that sense. Now, I think when you, you look at that question, one of the first things, it's not if our country decides to do something that is just for greed and just for power, and let's be honest, we have done that in the past at times, and is it just then for us to participate in war? I don't think the Scripture gives any justification for that at all. As we deal with that, because our authority, excuse me, our highest authority, our highest duty is owed to God Almighty, not to the United States of America or to whatever country that you happen to be a member of. You know, and in that sense, you should never wind up with a situation where there are believers opposing each other in war, because somebody's fighting unjustly in that sense. That's very difficult, and how we apply that, I think everybody individually has to examine those issues and look at it. See, you know, is the commands, the order that I've been given, is that just? That's why uh, using un- using uh, unjust means, using the wrong means to accomplish a good, you know, the ends never justifies the means. We can't use bad means to accomplish what we even think are good things. Uh, we have to put all that into place. We follow God's law. We keep our duty, our, our loyalty to Him first and foremost. When we make those decisions, that's a question, and I think every soldier faces, uh, and you have to address that as part of. It's a question of police officers facing when they do their jobs. It's you know everything that we do. Are we being first and foremost loyal to Almighty God because He is the one who demands our absolute loyalty? You know, James chapter four verse one says this: uh, "What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you?" I think from the Bottom line, the reason why we have war is because we have sin. And uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 8 says there's a time for everything. And in verse 8 it says, there's a time to love. Somebody say amen. Mm. And there's a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. So um, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Our first uh, authority is God. And then after that, it's the people who rule over us. And I, I, you know, in our community group, our small group, uh, Kim and I's small group, uh, everyone who's in there has been a soldier before except for Kim and I. And um, one of the things I hear over and over again is, you know, it's just hard to be a good soldier and to be a good Christian. And that is, that's, a, that's a fine line to, to, to balance. And, uh, you know, I praise God for you men and women who, uh, who try to do that every day, just try to just do that balance in life. Uh, thank you so much. Next question. Is it possible to have a fulfilling marriage if your spouse is an unbeliever? Is it better to end the marriage? Wow. Uh, who wants to take that? <laughs> I'll go first. All right, thanks, buddy. I think one, the Apostle Paul basically answers this question in, in his letter to the Corinthians, and I can't remember what first or second. But basically, he says, if you're in a marriage with an unbeliever and they don't want you to leave, stay there. Stay in that marriage. Uh, 
So the answer to that question is pretty directly. If the unbeliever wants out and wants a divorce, you need to let him go peacefully. That's the command that, that he gives the scripture in dealing with that issue. Is it possible to have a fulfilling marriage if your spouse is an unbeliever? Now, that's a difficult question to answer. Certainly at some level, it is possible. Certainly, it, it, you know, at some level of existence it is. But ultimately, it's not because you, you have the issue of right fellowship and fellowship. One that's saved and one that is in a relationship with Christ and one that is not. And they don't have that kind of relationship that is as fulfilling as God intended. That verse you were talking about is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 13. It says, And if a Christian woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. Verse 14. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage. Holiness to her marriage. And the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. You know, and we've addressed this in the first service. So many times people get divorced because I'm not happy. He's saying, you know what, maybe you're, maybe you're married to an unbelieving spouse. He says, you know what, the issue is not your happiness. The issue is God's holiness. So if they are willing to stick it out, you need to be willing to stick it out. And you know what, I, this is in First Peter chapter 3, I believe it is. Let me see if I can find this. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says, hopefully this is the right verse. If not, yes. All right. Um, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Um, it, it, then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any one, words, and they will be won over. Now, ladies, I want you to repeat this after me. Without any words. Nobody's playing with me on this. Ready? Let's do it again. Without any words. All right? So many times, you want to be able to, and forgive me, I, you just... You, Next question. No, just, <laughs> hear me on this one. And guys, we can be the same way, all right? But you don't want to nag them into the kingdom because that's not going to bring them to Jesus. You win them without a word. And eventually they're going to see that you're living the real deal. In fact, I, I don't mind embarrassing this person, Mike Nelson, who's standing in the back. The reason why he, he became a Christian is because his wife, Marie. And Marie won him without a word. And, uh, I mean, some of you out there, you know exactly, because you're there. You've been there. So, great question. Next question. Science says that the dinosaurs were here long before humans, but were in the Bible. But where in the Bible does it talk about dinosaurs? That's a great question. By the way, 355, that, that number, somebody asked me, why do you put numbers on this thing? If you have your children, you know, you, you give the little, what do you call those, security tags? Uh, whoever who has 355, your child may need you. So that's why we put that up there. All right, cool. All right. Danny, answer this question. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not supposed to answer that one. Kim? Uh, <laughs> the Bible doesn't really talk specifically about dinosaurs. It does mention a couple of times in Job, I think it is, that mm -hmm. there's a reference to animals that could be dinosaurs. To be honest with you, the Bible doesn't mention the issue of dinosaurs. I think it doesn't mention it because it's really not that important. The bottom line. God told us, He didn't tell us everything that took place. He doesn't tell us all the details that have ever happened in history. We have the history that He gave to us through His Word that's important. You know, and when you start talking about dinosaurs, just because the Bible doesn't mention it doesn't mean that they didn't exist or that the scriptures have ruled them out. They they don't. Clearly they did exist and clearly they were here at a time. We don't know exactly when 
that dinosaurs were here on the earth. We don't have to know that is the bottom line to that. I think that's one of those curiosity questions that we throw out there or things that people use to attack the Scripture and the creation account that's in Scripture. And they make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. The Bible does not say dinosaurs never existed. It doesn't really, it just really does not address those. You know, now if you're talking about where that fits in evolution, I think it's one of those issues that we have to look at. The Bible clearly says that God did not create the world through evolution. That is a lie. That's just not true because evolution means that something happened randomly, unordered, without any direction or purpose at all that's involved. It's, you know, it's random chance. That's the whole concept of evolution. Now, how did the world come into being? God created it. He directed it. He did it by his order. So really when we talk about, you know, the issue of evolution, if we're talking about the idea of the earth coming into existence, the universe coming into existence by random chance without any order or direction, that is clearly uh, contrary to what God's Word said because it didn't happen randomly. God created it. Personally, I mean, and this, I, I don't have a lot of Scripture to back this up, so you're welcome to just say, that was stupid. All right? But this is my first... That, uh, I think dinosaurs were here, and the reason why they're extinct is because of the flood, to be quite honest with you. Um, in, in Genesis chapter 6, God sends the flood, wipes everything out, except Moses and his wife and the children and all the, the, uh, all the animals on the boat. So, um, Noah. No, what did I say? You said Moses. Get your Bible stories right, Chris. Come on. <laughs> oh. Genesis. All right. All right. I'm dumb. All right. Next question. Is it true that if you commit a sin and ask forgiveness, and if you commit the same sin again, you will not be forgiven? 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um. You know what? I've asked God forgiveness of a sin and then turned back around and did the sin. Romans 8, 1. This is what you quoted. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let me say it again. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will never, ever, 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 ever be judged for your sin. You know why? Because Jesus was judged for your sin already. What we're going to be judged for, and there will be a judgment, will be for what we do while we're uh, And that's a different subject. But um, the answer is um, you, God will always forgive you. Do you have something? Galatians 5.1 says, So it is Christ who has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up again in slavery to the law or in, or in sin. So basically what that's saying is, another translation says, it is for freedom that he has set us free. Do not let yourselves be basically bound again by sin. And so, once again, we have a part in that. Um, you know, when we ask God to forgive us, we don't just cross our fingers and go, well, hmm, hope that doesn't happen again. Um, we have to take an active role in living out what Scripture calls us to. And so we can't just kind of hope on a wing and a prayer that we get it right the next time around. We have to know what Scripture says. We have to do what God has called us to. And it says, now make sure that you stay free. And so in order to do that, we've got to know how to live rightly in Him. 
I want to just add, because in a sense we've answered this question just a few minutes ago when we talked about addictions and those things. But on the flip side of that, I think you, the scriptures do, do not condone what I would call willful defiant sin. And they clearly talk about asking for forgiveness is not a matter of saying a prayer. And it's not a matter of going through a litany of things or going through any kind of ritual or any kind of practice or habit that you have that is just something that you do. Okay, I recite my magic uh, incantation, and now I'm forgiven. Asking for forgiveness, and I'm going to assume that this is in the question, truly seeking God's forgiveness always, always includes repentance, which is turning away from the sin uh, and in seeking to be obedient to God's Word. So if we say, uh, you know, God forgive me, and in the same thought and same breath, I'm going to keep on doing this no matter what God says, you're not really asking for forgiveness. Uh, you're not really seeking because you haven't repented. So repentance is part of seeking God's forgiveness when we deal with it. We can't just defiantly continue to sin. We, you know, God addresses that very specifically in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. All right, next question. I know intellectually God is real, but I struggle to feel his love and his presence. How can I feel him? I know intellectually God is real, but I struggle to feel his love and his presence. How can I feel him? That's a great question. You know, I'll be honest with you, a lot of denominations, they get hung up on feeling. You know, i got to come here, and if I didn't feel God, then I really didn't go to church. And let me tell you, there have been times... In my life, there's been times where I've been pastor of one church and I've not felt God. Because, I, in fact, if you remember, and if it, uh, you can go back and listen to our podcast, and this, we talked about Habakkuk, and we really answered this question here. Because what do you do when you're in the dip? What do you do when you don't feel like you're close to God? What do you do when you feel like, you know, your prayers, when you pray, go right here, and they, they just stop? Um, it's not about feeling close to God. It's about... The fact that God loves you. And I almost think sometimes God sometimes even withdraws those feelings some just to see, are we in it for the feelings or are we really in it for the relationship? How many of y'all are married? Hey, tell me, uh, when y'all first got married, how was the feelings in y'all's relationship? I'll show you how it was. Come here. (laughs) Oh, that was bad. All right. I mean, what? It was passionate, right? I mean, everybody, you got married, and it was like, oh, that's awesome. I love it, right? Now, t- 20 years down the road, how is it? Sometimes you wake up, and it's like, all right? Not with Kim, of course. You know, y'all feel that way. I don't. Um, but seriously, no, there's sometimes, the honeymoon sometimes gets over. And the question is, are you in that relationship for the feeling, or are you in it for a fact, there's a great book written by Gary Smalley that says this, love is a decision. If you decide that you're going to love someone, you know what, the feelings will come. And that's how it is with our relationship with God because it's a relationship just like our spouse is a relationship. There are some times that, wow, it's great. And wow, I open up the Bible, it's like God spoke to me and he's real. And there's sometimes where I, I, Chris, open up the Bible and I read it and I'm thinking, I didn't understand any of that. And I just feel dry inside. And the question is, am I going to continue to persevere 
in and continue to read God's Word and pray because there will be a time. The reason why we talked about in Habakkuk, the reason why God allows those dips in our lives and those dry times is because He wants our roots to go deeper in Him. And He wants to become more intimate with us and for us to become more intimate with Him. Y'all have anything you want to add on that? I was thinking of another book that deals specifically with this question over and over and over again. It's called the book of Psalms. Because if you read the Psalms, David in particular was right there a lot. Uh, a lot. And that's exactly what the struggle that he had in times. He just did not feel God's presence. And I think part of the answer is Chris talked about The goal is not feeling. Your feelings lie to you. Many times, you know, God is there and he does exist and he is present right here with us. We experience that, it, you know, sometimes we experience it in a more emotional sense than we do at other times. And as Chris said, sometimes God pulls away from us so that we will seek Him. And I think that's the answer as I see it is the Scripture says seeking. It says seeking, seeking, seeking. We do that by opening up His Word, right. by getting on our knees and, and spending time in prayer with Him. Uh, we do it through music. We do it through, you know, Christian music that, that, that speaks of God and we praise God. One of the things that the Psalms, that the psalmist did, that David did, is he sung praises to God. He wrote those psalms and he sang to God the praises of what God had done in his life and he remembered those things. Uh, we don't seek the emotion. We seek God. But I guarantee you, if you seek God and when he reveals himself to you, you will feel his presence. You know, another thing, uh, uh, I didn't address this. The, maybe the reason why you don't feel close to God is because you have sin in your life as well. And if that's the case, then you've got to come clean and um, it's like if there's something between Kim and I, we don't feel that, you know, we don't feel that lovey-dovey. Uh, there may be a time where I have to say, Kim, you know, I was wrong on this. Please forgive me. I, I spoke to you badly, and I, I just I blew up, and please forgive me. And, and she says, you know, I forgive you. And, and then it, it, in those times, I feel very close to her. But, but before that time, you know, because I was not acting nice or whatever, or, or there was something in between us, we don't feel that closeness doesn't mean we still don't have a relationship. Of course we do. But we don't have that close, close deal. Anything you want to say? In 1 Corinthians, um, in chapter 6, there's a section that is talking about how our bodies are to be pure. Um, and here it's mentioned sexually. But in verse 19, um, I just think this principle applies. It says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. And this is the part that I just love. For God bought you with a high price. And so that reminder of we have been bought. You know, Jesus laid down his life for us so that he could pay the price for us. And so sometimes we may, we may not necessarily feel it, but we are guaranteed in him. Um, there's a verse that says the gifts of God are irrevocable. They cannot be taken away. And so even when we don't necessarily feel close, we have the promise of God. He paid a high, for, a high price for us. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And so we know that we belong to him. And you know, the scriptures say we are his treasured possession. I just love that. It says over and over again, he treasures us. We're his treasured possession. He loves us. Mm-hmm. I think we have time for two more questions. So uh, next one. This is a long one. I need a deep breath. 
What does God think when you turn to fertility treatments when you are unable to become pregnant after years of prayer and trying? Are you interfering with God's work or plan? Um, you know, God's word doesn't say anything that it's right or wrong. I think God is sovereign. Now, that's a very churchy word, so let me unpack that. God is in control. And if you turn to fertility treatments, um, you know what? I think if God, if God still, you know, for some reason, if he says, you know what? It's not for you. Even if you turn to fertility treatments, it's not going to work. But if you return to fertility treatments and God gives you children, then praise God. Now, we talked about this last week about the contraceptives. You know, is it wrong or is it right to use um, contraceptives? And um, I, th this is the same thing. God is in control. And if he wants you to get pregnant, and that means, you know, you do the fertility route, and you're praying, and you're trusting in God, not in the fertility, but you're trusting that God is going to give you those children. And if he does through that, then praise God. It's a gift. And I'm saying this. You know, there, there are, there's a lot of a lot of people who struggle with this. I got a really good friend in another church who struggles. They've been praying and praying and praying and praying and praying to get pregnant, and it just hasn't happened. And I can't even imagine the pain that you go through. God, I can't I can't imagine it, but God understands, and He still loves you. So if you want to try the fertility route, I say praise God. You do that. You still trust in God, and if He gives you children then you give all the praise and honor and the glory to God. First Samuel chapter 1, it talks about a woman named Hannah. And Hannah doesn't have any children. And let me tell you what Hannah did. And Hannah went to God and said, God, if you give me this child, I'm going to give him straight back to you. And God heard her prayer, and God gave her a child named Samuel. And guess what? She said, I'm going to give him back to you. And in fact, if she starts singing in chapter 2, and she says, now the childless one, I think, has seven children. God gave her not only just one, but it was almost like John and Kate plus eight. So, so anyway, speaking of that. We have three boys at the Edmondson household. <laughs> hey, y'all come uh, on by anytime. Pick one of them up. Take them uh, home for the afternoon. Uh, right. Welcome to it. How many of y'all watched John and Kate plus eight this past week? I, man, I watched that, and I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. It's, this question came up before. Your main focus needs to be your spouse, not your kids. I'm going to say that one more time. Your main focus needs to be your spouse, not your children. They're both sitting on that couch and they're saying, you know what, I'm here for the kids. And, she, and he and she's, I'm here for the kids. You know what, they need to be there for each other. And uh, I just, I would encourage you, it's God first and your spouse second. Um, and you know what? You, you, you're in a covenant relationship with your spouse. You're raising those kids to get out of the house. Amen? <laughs> Amen. All right? But God has given you a, a covenant relationship with them. Anybody, anything you want to say? I mean, I just, I was crying during that. It just was heart-wrenching. You want to say something? Well, I did, but I want to ask that question. Go ahead. And I, just because I... Maybe I'm reading more into it than is there, but when I read that question, what I think of is that somebody feels like God is mad at them or angry because they are, want children and they're using fertility uh, treatment. I don't think you need to fear that God is angry. and He's not some uh, ogre sitting up there in heaven just trying to be angry with you because you didn't do exactly the right thing. If you seek Him and you seek to do His will, 
uh, he is not going to be angry at you. He's not going to, you know, ask what does God think? Well, we don't know what God thinks except for what he tells us in his word. And he tells us that he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And when we're struggling, he is struggling with us and he's right there with us. He's not getting angry or hateful because you're struggling and you're seeking to have that desire, have that desire in your heart for him. Anything you want to say about that, Dan? All right, last question. If you ask God to speak to the heart of a non-believer and the non-believer is stubborn, will God keep trying as long as you keep praying for him? Let me jump on that first. Is the heart of the non-believer stronger than God? Mm. Uh, You know, I think uh, we pray for people to come to a saving relationship with Christ. And they're stubborn. But I don't see that, you know, uh, will God keep trying? God accomplishes his purpose. You know, and what he asks us to do is to keep praying over and over again. That is one of those encouragements we see in Scripture. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. Keep on praying. That's a real question to me with my family. And I'm keeping on praying. And keeping on praying. And that's what I would encourage and urge you to do as well. I think one of the things, um, because this is an issue that I face in in my family as well, um, is that sometimes if we feel that we have become um, maybe ineffective or that we've spoken so much about the Lord to a person and they're just kind of like, don't want to hear from you anymore, and they kind of give us the hand in the face, um, my prayer has become that God will bring someone into the path of this person in my family that can speak truth to them in a way that they will hear it. And so it takes, it takes kind of takes me out of the picture as far as the role that I play in that person's life and then seeing me as, oh, well, you know, you're married to Chris and he's a pastor and you're the pastor's wife, and you know, it kind of takes that away when I say, Lord, wherever this person may be, in the environment they are, in work, in school, wherever they hang out, please, bring someone to them that will speak truth in the way they will hear, in the way they will understand, so that it takes me out of the picture, but I'm still praying for them. You know, Scripture is very clear that the heart of God is one that does not want anyone to to not know Him. I mean, it says that He woos us to Him. He longs for us to be in relationship with Him. And so, even in our stubbornness, His His longing for us is greater than that. And so even if I am not the one who gets to speak those words to this person in my life, I still pray that God will bring someone who will. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 9 says this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. See, I think that's kind of the, the crux of this question. You know, it doesn't seem like, you know, what's going to happen? It says... The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And uh, I'll tell you, there are some of you out there today, you know, you, you've, you've hung out and, and, you know, you say, you know what, I don't know about the whole church thing, don't know about the whole Jesus thing. Um, you know, I just, God says in his word, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. No one. How many, raise your hand if you're anyone or no one. You part of the human race? Raise your hand. All right? Some of you are going, I'm an alien. 
right? No, no. Uh, it's God's desire so that no one would be destroyed, but that everyone would have eternal life. So if you're here this morning and you're like, I don't know if I have that relationship with God that you've been talking about. If you're here this morning and say, you know, I know I don't have that relationship with God. What do you need to do to be able to have that? John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the... How many of y'all are in the world? Okay, good. That He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever, that's any of y'all, and anybody outside this wall, that whosoever would believe in Him, would believe in Him, would not be destroyed, would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's my prayer that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior today, that you would be able to ask Him today. As we close, I just want to be able to just uh, uh, pray for you and, um, and say this. It's not about repeating a prayer. It's not about saying those things. It is about beginning a relationship with Him. And if you would like to do that this morning, we want to be able to give you the opportunity to do that. Um, that you, we want to be able to give you the opportunity to say, you know what, I realize that my sin, I feel so separated from you right now, God. And I'm asking you to come in and to save me. I'm asking you to come in and to wipe all of my sins clean. His word says in Psalm that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, that's what we need. So I pray that we would all bow our heads. Let's pray. And um, if you're here and you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't want you to repeat after me because it's not my words. It's nothing magical in what I say. But it's what you say to Jesus. It's what you say and mean in your heart. You just ask Jesus, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me of all of my sins. Ask Him that He would just wipe you clean. That He would make you holy and pure. Tell Him that you believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He did for you. Tell Him that you're thankful that, that He loves you. He loved you. His word says in Romans 8, 5, 8 says that He demonstrates His own love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Jesus didn't die for you because you were having a good day. But He died for you when you were at your worst and when I was at my worst. Come into my heart, Jesus. Thank you for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name that we pray.